welcome to a Lanyap episode of the Swampflix podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I am Boomer. And we are recording in Louisiana and Texas. This is the podcast version of the movie review website Swampflix. And I am very much looking forward to talking about movies and not politics for the next hour. <laughs> Just as a welcome relief from the world. Yeah, yeah. How have you been holding up? How are you doing? You know, uh, a whole lot better than the protagonists of the film that we're going to be talking about today. But, you know, all things considered, pretty good. I do find it funny that we're already back in the um, horror genre, not very long after Halloween. Like, you'd think it would be sick of this by now, but um, we jumped right back into the grim supernatural terror. If I'm not sick of it after 33 years, I mean uh, 24 years, <laughs> I'm not going to be sick of it yet. <laughs> Wait, I'm definitely not 33 years old. I'm definitely 24 folks <laughs> <laughs> very convincing well have you had any other any time to watch anything besides our movie we're discussing today uh well i did watch the last dance of salome which we will be or you'll be publishing at the beginning of december uh the movie of the month roundtable that we do i guess you probably already read my thoughts and anybody who hasn't read them yet will have the opportunity to read them eventually so don't really have a lot to share about that one, except that um, I really enjoyed it. You had said before we were going to be watching a Ken Russell movie. And I think at that time, I was like, I don't know that I've seen any of them. But you pointed, you were listing them off. And I have obviously seen Altered States, which That's is a classic. Way. And I have also seen In the Lair of the White Worm, although not since I was a teenager, which was just a few years ago because I'm 24. Um, <laughs> it definitely wasn't over over 15 years ago because I'm 33. Consistency is very important. <laughs> it's very important. Mostly I have been watching uh, television programs that I have been waiting to be caught up on. I started Penny Dreadful finally after all this time. Really enjoying that. I'm watching the His Dark Materials TV show on HBO because I loved the Golden Compass, as it was called in the U.S., and its uh, sequels whenever I read them in college. I don't know if they were published when I was a child, which was definitely sometime in the mid to late 90s and not the early to mid 90s, <laughs> but they're very good. So that I'm really enjoying. Uh, as far as movies, I did see the Bloom House production of The Invisible Man with Elizabeth Moss. It's very good, I thought. Yeah, I did too. Uh, the internet seemed to have nothing but derision for it, both when it first came out and then when it came to HBO Max. I must have seen so many different memefied versions of that one shot of Elizabeth Moss saying he is a world leader in the field of optics. <laughs> like I saw it memed to death and I was like, oh, I guess this movie is ridiculous. And I, I mean, it is, but it's also, it was also very uh, entertaining. It really pulled you into it while also occasionally being like, we're going to go full camp. Yeah. If you're going to have your villain be like this, like Elon Musk surrogate, it's got to be a little ridiculous, but the actual like trauma he inflicts the entire film is like so recognizably fucked up and real. Yeah, like, I can't imagine just laughing the whole thing off because of a couple lines like that. Yeah, the way that, I mean, spoilers from the Invisible Man, I guess, but the way that her sister dies also is a scene yeah. that it's horrifying, but also a little bit campy because of just how ridiculous it looks. And then 
everybody's freak out. I did gasp at that death scene in the theater. I was like, oh my God, it really did take me off guard. I, I was like, it's a constantly surprising movie. And I, I like that director's previous film Upgrade too a lot. So Yeah, I I really like Lee Whannell. He is a frequent guest on a podcast that I listen to, The Weekly Planet, which is, you know... Nerd shit? It is, yeah. <laughs> I think it originally started out as the official podcast of like comicbookmovienews.com like some some website that like is far past its prime and put out to pasture now but it is yeah it's just nerd shit uh they're pretty great they're australian (laughs) and so is lee winnell so you know he's like a friend of the show who comes on from time to time and i also really enjoyed upgrade i think that we've talked about that briefly before maybe it just ended up on both of our end of the year lists but and, you know, I have mixed feelings about, like, the Saw series, but Lee Winnell, I'm, I'm pretty positive. I have pretty positive feelings about. Also, major shout-out to Aldous Hodge for not skipping Lat Day. Holy shit, dude. You look great, Aldous. <laughs> you know, I've been a big fan ever since Leverage. You're doing a great job. Love to see you in more things. And it's really cool to see uh, Elizabeth Moss give her, like, complete and total breakdown performance to something a little trashier and less like completely devastating. Yeah. Her acting is like world caliber. So to see her like do like a Bloomhouse movie with that level of effort is like really fun. I agree. She's she's really classing up the joint whenever she's there. Definitely. So actually the last time I went to the movie theater was to see The Invisible Man back in March. It was the last movie I saw like with a crowd. And yesterday i went to see a movie in public again all these months later i went to an outdoor screening at the new orleans film festival they they had this like kind of blow up screen that they projected this movie undina on it's a german film that just came out from the guy who did phoenix and transit was his most recent one it was a welcome experience to like leave my couch and watch a movie in public again i uh was a little distracted by the mosquitoes and the fact that my glasses were fogging up from my mask the whole time. But um, I was out of the house and around people and not people I work with, which was like a, a very major change from like the last eight months. I'm glad for you. That sounds good. It was good. And uh, the movie was good too. It, it wasn't like entirely my thing. It's like a fairy tale told in a very understated, realistic way. Uh, set in modern Berlin. So I was excited by this like kind of fairy tale horror premise it has. Um, and I don't want to get too specific about it. Uh, the least vague way I could put it is that it's basically like someone watched the lore and was like, how do I strip this of everything over the top about it and make it like a like film festival awardsy drama, which my brain does not go there. Like the excess and the glitter and the glam of the lore is like very much my shit and this is like a maybe smarter more toned down version of it but i i really just enjoyed the experience of getting out of the house on top of the the movie being like decently good our brains actually encode information as fuzzy traces more like a general meaning than an exact record this is horseshit and adults are more likely to combine those traces into false memories you saw mom put the dog in the office on a number of occasions. My God, what did they do to you? Way before dad forbade anyone else from going in the office. Those traces fused with your memory of that day. I feel sorry for you. 
Okay, what's more likely? That you're misremembering events from 11 years ago? Or that the mirror eats dogs? All right, so um, we weren't speaking of Bloomhouse anymore. But speaking of Bloomhouse, uh, we watched a Bloomhouse or a Jason Bloom produced WWE produced slash released slash distributed film from 2013 entitled Oculus, directed by Mike Flanagan and starring Brenton Thwaite, Karen Gillum, and Katie Sackhoff, as well as uh, Rory Calhoun, I think is his name. Some guy. Yeah, I mean, I remember him from CSI New York. It's not Rory Calhoun. That's the actor who's always standing and walking, according to Mr. Burns. It's Rory Cochran from CSI (laughs) Miami, not CSI New York. He's fine in this. But the big draw for me back when the film first came out in 2013, as longtime readers and fans of the site may be aware, I originally did my master's thesis on the political, visual, and feminist rhetorical strategies of the television show Battlestar Galactica, which starred Katie Sackhoff as Starbuck. And at the time that this film was released, the Doctor Who franchise had kind of peaked uh, as far as having a renaissance that began with sort of a reboot of the series in 2005 and had a like huge growth and following as David Tennant played the Doctor and then Matt Smith and then kind of peaked around the period that Karen Gillum was on. So this movie was kind of a meeting of two big sci-fi franchise juggernauts and also Brenton Thwaite was there to pretty it up a little bit for uh, people who aren't that into the ladies, I guess. Mike Flanagan, it was one of his earliest, possibly his directorial debut, other than short films, including his original short film on which this was based. I think he had one like micro budget kind of like sleeper hit cult movie before this that basically got him this job. I think this is like his first like professional budgeted film for sure. Oh, yeah. He did something called Absentia, which I have never seen. But looking at all of the various little laurel leaf crowns that are very small on the poster on Wikipedia. It looks like it was um, pretty well regarded in its time. I've only heard good things, but I've never watched it. Yeah. uh, You know, you have not shared your Mike Flanagan thoughts with me, but you have shared with me that you have Mike Flanagan thoughts and that uh, we are not necessarily in agreement. So I'm looking forward to hearing (laughs) what those thoughts are, but Oculus uh, elevator pitch, a woman and her recently released from mental institution incarceration brother who are respectively 23 and 21 she has during his time that he was sort of incarcerated made arrangements to take possession of a mirror that was purchased by their parents and within a very short period of time had driven both parents to violent madness and apparently has had a history of doing so over the course of the existence of this mirror essentially that it's haunted or possessed or something and she has spent her lifetime preparing to destroy this mirror by any means necessary with the help of her brother who does not remember the events of their childhood or the fateful night on which he was forced to shoot their father after her, their father had killed their mother, 
the same way that she does. Yeah, they they have arguments about what is memory and what is like actual supernatural events. Like she is convinced very much that how she remembers the mirror killing her family members is what went down. And the brother is very much of the mindset that her memory is like misconsolidating and mis reconfiguring events that's like confusing her yeah he's been able through his memory to normalize and like scienceify uh this like supernatural horror they went through yeah his time within the mental health system has given him basically he has spent time in an extremely rational world where he has been taught how to completely rationalize away this clearly supernatural event that happened to him and to his sister yeah actually like so much of the movie is like the two of them arguing about that too yeah. like it kind of reminded me of me and you talking about these, like, <laughs> the difference between like a supernatural horror film and like a rational horror film like they're kind of arguing both of our points uh, against each other like yeah arguing for the movie to go one direction or the other but even the sister who i guess would be taking my point of view that like oh, this is more interesting if, if the mirror is actually killing people. Um, she's doing it in a very methodical scientific way where she wants like measured recordable results to prove that her observation of what happened is scientific and it is something that actually happened and not just her mind playing tricks. Yeah, on and you know, who knows? Maybe that's why this movie appealed to me so much when I saw it. So I went and saw it during its US release in 2014 and... At that time, there were not a lot of very good or original or refreshing or novel horror movies. I mean, that year did give us Unfriended, which I know that you love. But I remember watching it and thinking, something's changing. Because if you look at 2014, other movies that ended up coming out later that year were like, Goodnight Mommy, and It Follows, and... A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, uh, The Babadook came out that year, right? Whereas the year before, in 2013, the horror movies that you were getting were things like, I mean, I know that people love The Conjuring, I'm not a big fan, but it was mostly things like, just to read these names, The Texas Chainsaw Remake, Willow Creek, Devil's Pass, like, I don't know if you remember those, but there was nothing original, you know? The most original thing that came out in 2013 was The Purge. And The Purge is not actually that original. It's it's a home invasion movie with a weird premise that ends up getting explored better in its sequels, right? So I remember going to the movie theater solely because it was a movie that had Amy Pond and Starbuck in it and being blown away just to see what was, to me, the first horror movie that I could remember seeing in theaters in years that was completely original and novel that wasn't like a pastiche like cabin in the woods and like the difference between this and kind of the more recent like spoil of great films we get every year routinely now is that this isn't what could be misconstrued as quote-unquote elevated horror this is not like the a24 model of like heightened dread and atmospheric soundtrack cues the movie does have dread and all these things but it's also a cheap you know wwe bloomhouse co-production like it is a kind of a mainstream sensibility so it kind of catches you off guard like how smart it is especially with the um 
the two layered timelines, like you're both figuring out what happened in the past, like how they came to their parents dying in the house at the mirror's hands, metaphorical hands. Uh, and then at the same time, they're occupying that space as adults going through the same trauma again. Um, and those two stories are like paralleled in a way that's like consistently engaging and mixed really well. And it's all really well choreographed. It's so smart and well-constructed for a movie on its like budget level and like prestige level. Like this should be like a throwaway, like direct to VOD type horror film. And it's, it's really a lot more substantial than that. Yeah. At the time, you know, Mike Flanagan had not yet become known as Mike Flanagan, the creator of haunting of Hill house or, you know, Mike Flanagan, director of hush and Dr. Sleep and Gerald's game. He, was kind of a, not a nobody necessarily, but he certainly had not achieved any kind of mainstream recognition or penetration. And you can really see in this movie a lot of the things that he would go on to do in The Haunting of Hill House. There's some rough draft of Hill House elements at play here that I think really got developed further and perfected in that show. I haven't seen the second season uh, yet. I've only seen the first season, but especially the cutting between the older and younger versions of the same character, the way that the haunting mostly takes its effect psychologically and in the way that it causes people to turn on each other while also having plenty of just like pretty standard, normal jump scare elements as well. Uh, Especially that scene where she first confronts the mirror and there are the two sort of sheet-covered figures behind her that the camera, you know, briefly shows you as she first enters the room. And then in the mirror, suddenly there are three figures covered with sheets. And as she is removing sheets from these, what turns out to just be like busts in this auction house warehouse that she's in, just before she can remove that third sheet, she's interrupted. Like, that's such a, it's efficient and it feels almost like you've seen it before, but not quite. It still feels new just in how quickly it moves. Yeah, it's really clever, but it's also like very traditional. Yeah. I mean, even the look of the ghost in that scene is like a figure with a white sheet over them. Like that, you cannot get more traditional than that. But it's the way it's choreographed and like the way he like draws that moment out, it's genuinely unnerving. And the result of it is not what you would expect. There's no like jump scare at the end of it. It's just kind of coldly creepy. And then she's excited by (laughs) the interaction. She's like, fuck yeah, I gotcha. Yeah. She's like already getting proof that the mirror has like supernatural qualities to it. I'd also add to the list of like Mike Flanagan isms, uh, that scene where we first enter the house, or maybe it's when the mirror is first being mounted in the, um, the before times and like their childhood era. There's this like really cold, fluid camera movement that gives you like a geography of the house you're about to spend the rest of the film in. Yes. Where the camera like drifts on like a dolly through all the different rooms. And he like really orients where you're going to be like navigating. And it both reminded me a lot of the sort of same establishing shots from Hill House. But also, I I haven't seen Dr. Sleep yet. I I really should catch up with it. But it 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 felt very Kubrick and just how like coldly controlled it is like it's it's very like smart filmmaking very attention grabbing like oh i could see the cameras doing this like 
really fluid, purposeful movements throughout the house. Like it's really drawing attention to itself, but it's also doing it for a purpose. Like you need to know how all these different rooms are connected to make sense of the story going forward. So yeah, I just felt very Mike Flanagan. It was like, oh yeah, he was already kind of well-developed even at this early stage. Yeah, because this is a movie about a haunted mirror, but it's actually a haunted house movie. Like it's a haunted house movie where the mirror just happens to be the, the Oculus or the portal through which the possession occurs. And to circle back real quick, maybe the scientific investigation of the haunting itself is possibly what draws me to this one and draws me back to this one over and over again you know it's not just a matter of oh there's a spooky thing that's happening like she has devoted her life to figuring out a way to try and quantify this unquantifiable thing which to me is not necessarily like the apotheosis of the idea of what i'm looking for but it gets closer to it but you're right that it is just like you and me trapped in this eternal war over (laughs) what you and I put value in and put value on in horror media. It's kind of like funny how much of it feels almost like a play. Like it really is the two of them just kind of talking in a room and arguing both sides of that philosophical divide, um, especially towards the beginning. And I was like, Oh, I've played this out on a podcast before. I've been part of this conversation. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, with much lower stakes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Much lower stakes. The, playfulness of time the malleable nature of time where the children at points it almost seems like the children in the flashbacks are actually looking at the present day versions of themselves and experiencing that as part of the haunting which you know spoilers for hill house is a pretty major plot point about nell's story yeah so it's that also is one of the things that i i see him taking a rough draft approach with this film that would eventually become a bigger part of Haunting of Hill House. Now, we have not talked at length about this, and I am interested to hear your point of view. I think Mike Flanagan is one of the greatest contemporary, current, young, working horror directors. I I don't want to say one of the greatest living directors, because we still have like Carpenter and Argento and a lot of really great directors with us. But as far as like young directors working in the genre right now, I think that I find him to be very consistent. I think Haunting of Hill House is great. I thought Gerald's Game was amazing. And I thought Dr. Sleep was one of the best movies of last year. I was absolutely blown away by it and the way that it managed to juggle a lot of expectations at once. But you think that Flanagan is just okay. Not to put you on the spot. I think he's one of the most competent directors working right now in horror. He is a craftsman. He obviously knows how to frame a shot. He knows how to structure a story. It's all very like impressively made stuff. I don't see much of a personality there. I don't get that messy, like fingerprints on the glass. Like a human was here making this vibe from him, which is more the kind of stuff I like in horror films and just films in general. I like there to be like a personality and like a a level of id on the screen that I never get from him. But, I mean, to be fair, I haven't seen his two King adaptations, which are probably his two better reviewed works. And thinking back on this film and, like, I had not seen this since 2014, so since before we started blogging. But I enjoyed it a lot at the time, and I've long thought of it as my favorite Mike Flanagan movie. And the reason I didn't catch up with the new stuff is because I was 
getting like diminished returns every time I was coming back for like Hush or like Ouija Origin of Evil or uh, Hill House. I was just like, I don't like any of these quite as much as Oculus. I think it's not that they're not as well made. I mean, if anything, the craft is probably better in those films. Like he's only gotten more and more competent as like a, a workman in a structural sense. But I think expectation has a lot to do with his work. And I'm kind of hitting that wall with a lot of horror media lately. I've been following more and more over the years, like writers for sites like Fangoria or Bleeding Skull, like these outlets that only cover horror stuff. And like every week, there's at least one new title where they just completely lose their shit. And they're like, this is the greatest thing ever. And you watch it and you're like, that was fine. It was okay. Uh, (laughs) It was like a three star decent film. I don't know what the hyperbole was all about. And I feel like he is kind of the king of that for me. Like the hype for each one of his new films is untenable. Like it, it cannot be matched by the actual work itself, which is too much pressure to put on anybody. And if, if you watch this film, which had no hype and just kind of felt like it came out of nowhere, it has so much more room to impress you and like overcome. It's like trashy, cheap circumstances. Like the fact that this is a WWE film, Notably without any wrestlers in it. So that helps a lot. (laughs) And it's like this good. Like this has got to be one of their, if not their best, like one of their best productions as like a film studio. I don't know. It's like so much easier to be impressed by that than it is to be impressed by something you've told is one of the greatest horror films of the past decade. Like you're walking into the room with a lot less baggage in this case. I can see that because you're right. This movie came out of seemingly nowhere and i remember at the time even like telling people go see this movie and them not being very impressed a neighbor in particular was like i kind of don't really get why this was so impressive to you but you know whatever and to me he does seem like he's really only gotten better and maybe this like lack of fingerprints that you're talking about is something that i'm not realizing I'm enjoying because, you know, I haven't seen Ouija Origin of Evil. I've seen this. I've seen Hush, which I really enjoyed. And it definitely falls into a certain category of things that I like. But I do remember my roommate being largely unimpressed by it. And I will say that Hush is probably a very workmanlike movie. There's not a lot of um, creativity with the camera movement. It's creative in the same way that Oculus is, where there's, you know, it's good at establishing space, but not necessarily at creating a feeling in the same way. Whereas Gerald's game feels like a very pure interpretation of the material, which is another thing that you and I are not necessarily always in agreement about, where you don't give a shit if something is true to the source material. (laughs) I have my own feelings about it where... I like to hope and think that I'm not like a jerk where everything has to follow the stations of the canon. There are plenty of things that differ that I'm like, oh, this was a great choice. This is a great adaptation, even if it's not necessarily a very faithful adaptation. But Gerald's Game is a very faithful adaptation. And that is a book that its content does not seem like it would translate well to the screen. And I was far too young to read Gerald's Game when I did. I don't know what my grandmother was thinking. And it has stuck with me so clearly over the years. And to see the film version 
be done so well, despite the fact that it's a movie that takes place almost entirely within the character's mind. And yet, to see it translated to film so well was very impressive to me. And again, Dr. Sleep, part of it might have been that I had just finished reading The Shining, like one of the original editions, at around the time that Dr. Sleep came out. So I kind of, like, my Overlook Hotel pump was completely primed. But Dr. Sleep is like another order of magnitude beyond anything that he's done before. But it feels right. It feels like King. And maybe it's because he's not putting his fingerprints on it. And depending on what you really want from a director or what you expect from a director or what you want to be a director's vision, you know, I love Argento movies not because of their plot or because of their specific narrative. Those might be things I enjoy, but it's always the Argento-ness of it that I love most. And you're right that right. there's not a Flanagan-ness to his work in that same way. And that's like a roadblock I have as an audience where I can appreciate the craft that goes into all Flanagan's movies, but I'm, I am missing that, like, I almost want to call it like vulnerable quality that like an artist like putting their most id impulses on the screen. Like I'm always drawn to that. So we're like, if I watch any of his films, I usually am like, wow, that was really well made. What a good movie. But I'm never like, that is one of the best movies I've seen in a long time. Like I don't make that like leap where I really connect to it because I'm missing that connection to what drives him as an artist. Like I don't really know what draws Mike Flanagan to a project besides, you know, adapting horror literature greats. I feel like is kind of his recent call. But in those cases, he's just doing really well-made adaptations of other people's id and not putting his own thought on the screen, you know? There are things that are done with the camera in Dr. Sleep that I have not seen in any of his other work. So again, we're going to have to talk about that one and we're going to have to talk about it soon. And Yeah, we'll have to catch up with that. You know, it might be that he's just imitating Kubrick with that. I, I don't want to influence your viewing experience of it or your attitude about it, but I will say and admit that it is entirely possible that what I'm seeing and really loving in Dr. Sleep and seeing as so wholly original could just be him echoing the way that Kubrick shot The Shining because Dr. Sleep is, as a film, walking a very weird line of being a sequel to Kubrick's Shining while also being an adaptation of Stephen King's, you know, Dr. Sleep. So I... I don't know. There, it's just that there are parts of this movie that are admittedly shot very much like a TV show, especially like whenever they cut to an establishing shot of the house, which I think kind of does lure you a little bit into a false sense of security before it gets really weird and you kind of start to lose track of where you are timeline-wise and who's experiencing what. Whereas, you know, Dr. Sleep has these, like, beautiful crane shots and helicopter shots and, like, you know, traveling and, like, lots of motion in a way that there isn't as much in this. I wonder how much of that is budget, though, because I imagine the budget for Dr. Sleep was at least ten times the amount for this movie. The budget for this movie was, like, four million dollars. It was not a lot. Yeah, but there are shots where he like stretches his legs, especially earlier when I was talking about like the establishment of like the geography of the house. Yeah. Like that felt very Kubrick to me. So, I mean, 
if he is imitating Kubrick in any way, it is like that's coming from a genuine place. Like he is a nerd for that kind of like technical camera movement. And obviously he has a passion for this genre in general. I don't think that if he didn't care about horror and about like the history of like how the genre has been executed on the screen before by the greats that he probably would have moved on by now, you know, like he would have taken a couple paychecks from this genre that is like consistently profitable and then gone and made some movie in a different tone somewhere else. But he keeps returning to this stuff. So he, he does have like a consistency in that way. But if you had asked me if I knew this was a Mike Flanagan movie with his name removed, even after seeing a couple other films, like I might not have, I might not have guessed, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. That's a very valid criticism. You know, I'm not going to argue with that. But you know what I do love though? I do love movies about evil objects. <laughs> they really are the best, right? Stick that mirror in the basement of the cabin and cabin in the woods. And it's a very creepy looking design too. I think it's very effective. And there's also something, I think that the fact that the house is empty other than the equipment that she's brought into this one room and these plants that she's brought in to test like the mirror's range of influence the sparseness of the house lends itself to a certain discomfort as well. Yeah. It reminds me of those like neighborhoods that like tech companies buy up like entire rows of identical houses to put their like employees in. It's just completely like a ready-made nothing of a house. So like to have this ugly ornate antique mirror, like hanging on the wall. Yeah. Makes it even more threatening. Cause it's like the only thing in there with any sense of history. It's not it's not exactly a McMansion, but you're right. It is. It does have certain very clear, dated, modular styles. And the yeah. clinical coldness of the scientific evaluation combined with the general emptiness of the place does create uh, an aesthetic of like discomfort. I don't want to let this conversation go without mentioning what was the primary scene that was used in the advertising at the time, which was uh, Karen Gillum biting into a light bulb. Sick. That scene is something else. It's very it's very simple, but it's you just feel it. You feel it in your body, you know? That is uh, something that speaks to me, too, as someone who um, I'm, I'm trying not to, but uh, goes through life doing, like, automatic actions and, like... I don't really notice what my body is doing a lot of the time. So like biting into a uh, light bulb as if it were an apple is a um, relatable horror that could happen to me. <laughs> it's not outside the realm of possibility, <laughs> even without like a mirror fucking me up. But I, I was kind of talking about Flanagan as like a cold presence and like someone who's like very meticulous. He does get very grimy with his gore a lot of the time. Like her picking those glass shards out of her gums or like the dad chooses fingernails off in this movie. Yeah. Um, Katie Sackhoff is like chained to a wall at one point. She might be missing her teeth. Yes. She's missing her teeth because she's chewing on the ceramic plate that she's broken. That stuff is horrific and a genuine like dictionary definition. Like it really, it just horrifies me. So I don't know. He really goes for the jugular when it comes to the actual like nasty qualities of the genre. It's not like he doesn't want to get his hands dirty. And I think earlier when you were talking about like the TV quality of some of the establishing shots and like the sort of general vibe, like for those gore moments to be so disturbing and so hard to look at, like that only makes that contrast even 
worse. Like it, it makes you squirm even harder because you really didn't. Ex- you felt like you were a little safe from that. Like there's no way the movie's gonna go that hard. Yeah, yeah. You start to think it's gonna be, you know, a CW level of violence, and then it goes for like an HBO level of violence. Well, let me ask you, as like a person who does like Flanagan a lot, like where does this fall in his catalog for you? Is this still high on the list of things, even though it was like the first one you saw? Or do you think it's just completely just gotten better and better as he goes along? I think that he has definitively gotten better as time has gone on, simply because Oculus has a lot of really great things working in it, but I think that he's carried those over into his later works and expounded upon them, like with Hunting of Hill House. And even Hush, which was just a few years after this, does away with some of the weaknesses that this film has. Like, Hush is a very workmanlike film, but I definitely wouldn't say that it looks as inexpensive as this one was. And when you're talking about Dr. Sleep being the most recent thing that he's done, if you're looking at it as a curve over time of what I like, you know, Oculus is a movie that I really enjoy. Dr. Sleep is a movie that blew me away. Gerald's Game is a movie that I think was really great. So it, it's a it's a constantly upward curve. But I haven't seen Ouija Origin of Evil, so maybe I should, and maybe that'll... It's fine. It, maybe it'll bring my <laughs> estimation down a little bit. Maybe it'll, you know, temper my um, excitement. Yeah, I, I had, like, kind of diminished returns with that one in Hush, where I just didn't like them as much as Oculus. So I think I'm missing the more recent King adaptations. Maybe my opinion of him overall will go up watching those. I think my more general sense is that I like him. I think he's a great like stylist and I think he's really like obviously talented, like visual director. I just wish the hype around each project was a little, a little calm down a little, like a little lesson just cause it's like completely unfair for him to live up to like these expectations every time a movie comes out. Cause I, I never quite match them in my own estimation. You know, I get that. There are plenty of things that I experience hype backlash on. In this case with Mike Flanagan, though, like I feel even a little bad saying that I wish people were less enthusiastic because like one of the things I like about horror fans in general is that they're enthusiastic all the time. Like it's kind of refreshing considering how every other online fandom community is so toxically negative about everything. Uh it it just does make it a little hard to um decipher what to actually pay attention to and like to actually like walk into a movie cold and treat it on its own terms instead of like its reputation. I don't know, it's tough. We're all online way too much, I think is the my overall estimation of that. You know, I think that you're probably right. <laughs> well, um to completely contradict what I just said, we do post movie reviews on swampflix.com every day. So be online a little more and read other people's movie opinions. Ours. Obviously, they're great. And not hyping up things that can't live up to expectations. Yeah, I mean, we do generally enjoy almost everything. But our joy is tempered by uh, realism. We'll let you know that we enjoy it because we are trash monsters and not because yes, <laughs> uh, there's anything truly valid about the thing that we are enjoying for some reason. And if it's your first time checking out the site... There's a lot. There's a there's a big backlog um, for you to get through if you haven't read it before. I hope that you see it and have archive joy and not archive panic, but enjoy it either way. Yeah, we're closing on five years of this now, which is kind of insane. 
I probably will do it for at least five more years because what else am I going to do with my time? I'll be here. I'm not going anywhere. Unless somebody decides to buy my Mrs. Wintergreen project, in which case I'll cash my check and clock out. You'll never see me again. If somebody, if if I hit them riches, I'm gone. No, then I'll just have more time and I'll just write more is what will actually happen. Well, if none of us make it big in the next week, we will be back with another <laughs> podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care, Bye, everybody. When you think the night tests in your mind, that inside you're twisted and unkind, let me stand to show that you are blind. Please put down your hands, because I see you. I'm